Top Stories of the Week Australia orders too much Indian Also, Albanese puts the squeezy on independizies And Trump's grabbing things again This is News Weekly Hello, I'm Sami Shah and this is News Weekly, where we punch the news in the headlines weekly. What's an Australian news now? Every five years, Australia conducts a national census which reveals all kinds of fascinating information, from chronic health issues, population densities, home ownership, aspirations and many other such varied topics. Of course, the only thing anyone actually cares about is how many people are coming from India and China and why none of them can seem to get a job on Australian TV to talk about the census. India really did the leapfrog there and after being born in Australia and England, India is the next most likely country of birth. Almost half of Australians have a parent born overseas and nearly 28% of people living here were born overseas. In terms of where people were born, of course first is Australia followed by the United Kingdom, but India is now ranked third in terms of the number of people born overseas. But there are changes in where new Australians are coming from. If you look back just a generation, 30 years ago, our immigration was largely European. Five years ago, there was a growing diaspora from China and India. And in this latest census, India has overtaken China as one of our top sources of immigration. It's an interesting change in demographics and what long-term effects it will have on Australia's culture remains to be seen, although the short-term benefit, of course, is more masala dosas available on street corners, laser hair removal is going to become a growth industry, and there might actually be an Indian in your yoga class one day, making it super awkward when the white girl in tights says namaste. The other big news from the census was the equilibrium of the generational battle. Census data released overnight has confirmed a generational shift in Australia, with millennials now rivalling baby boomers as our largest generation. So the question is exactly, who are we all? Well, the largest cohort of people is now at a tie. It used to always be baby boomers first, but now it's the millennials, which is that 25 to 39-year-old age group. That's right. They're now the largest generation in Australia, 5.4 million of them. Mm -hmm. And so they've just taken over the baby boomers for that crown of demographic size. So there we go. Move over, baby boomers, with your negative gearing, slow radicalisation due to watching too much Andrew Bolt and refusal to accept anything cultural since Hey Hey It's Saturday was taken off the air. It's a millennial Australia now with rental insecurity, fast radicalisation due to watching too much Joe Rogan and a refusal to accept anything cultural since the final season of Game of Thrones broke your ability to trust again. We've gone from eating Metamucil to eating ass. You know who gets screwed the most in all of this, by the way? Generation X, my generation. Us kids who were born in the late 70s and early 80s, grew up in the 90s, and don't say who's that when someone mentions John F. Kennedy, Tears for Fears, or the Berlin Wall. We never got our chance to rule the world. It's going straight from the selfish asshole boomers to the polyamorous narcissist millennials. Meanwhile, we Gen Xers are the forgotten generation. Unless... This was our strategy all along, to get the boomers and the millennials to fight to the death and we, Gen
Gen Xers kill the survivors, take over and then rule the post-apocalyptic wasteland while Gen Zs spend all their time lip-syncing on TikTok or whatever the hell those weirdos do. Still, it would do well not to underestimate the millennials. Um, one other figure that was interesting was that of all of those who serve in the Australian Defence Forces, 48% of them are millennials. So almost half of those in uniform are this generation that was once derided as, uh, you know, here Snow for the flakes. short term. Exactly. <laughs> so far from it, they're defending our nation on top of everything else. There we go. We spent a whole decade making fun of millennials for wanting safe spaces and being triggered all the time. But it turns out the only safe space they were after was a no-fly zone and their fingers were on the gun trigger all along. All in all, the census was pretty interesting. From the larger influx of Indian migrants to the growing irrelevance of the boomers, there was a lot to analyse. Which is why, of course, Sky News spent all their time analysing how this spells the end of the world as we know it. This was the first census to take into account long-term health issues, which showed some interesting data. Well, for males, the number one long-term health condition was asthma. For females, arthritis, really a factor of an ageing profile there. But 8 million of us, that's one in three Australians, has a long-term health condition. And the number one long-term issue nationwide is mental health. And you know, we're well aware of that. So first time that question was asked in the census and it revealed some fascinating data. 2.23 million Australians said they struggle with mental health issues which is offensive to Sky News' Rowan Dean, who has personally worked so hard to raise that number much higher. I can't help but think that identity politics have crept in there. The first tranche reveals one in ten people now claim a mental health condition. How is revealing a mental health condition identity politics? Does Rowan Dean think everything is identity politics? Does he just present to his doctor every week and say, I'm worried I've got identity politics, and the doctor just goes, for the hundredth time, Rowan, that's a wart. Rowan Dean then goes on to speak with this guy. Well, this is fascinating. I'm joined now by Spectator Australia contributor and Sydney psychiatrist Tanvir Ahmed. Except here's something he didn't mention in Tanvir Ahmed's qualifications. He used to write for the Sydney Morning Herald, but in 2012 it was discovered he was a serial plagiarist who had stolen multiple passages from other writers and tried passing it off as his own work. Even The Spectator, a right-wing newspaper, has had to edit his columns after more plagiarism was found there and the Australian had to fire him for more plagiarism still. Oh, and he had to step down from his role as an ambassador with a domestic abuse charity after blaming feminism for the increase in violence against women. Oh, and then he went on to start a political action committee with Mark Latham, who's also a notorious misogynist and immense fucksplat. So, what does Tanvir have to say? This explosion within the census, what do you put it down to? Is there a component of identity politics? Yeah, I think there's some interesting cultural trends. So, one is the reduction in how we measure diagnosis. So there's been a kind of dilution of measures. It's become more subjective. Uh, it's often a checklist. It's less about the level of impairment, often linked to questionnaires. So I think the measures have declined. Now, part of the logic of that so is... So that means you get a broader... Exactly. It's a bigger people, tent. So rather than I'm a bit down or I'm a bit depressed, suddenly I'm, I've got mental... So it's medicalising a lot of things that are probably on the edge of normal. Right. And, and I think the profession sort of does that knowingly a little. And the logic is we attract more people. To, yeah. to try and get help. But I think many of them just get stuck to a diagnosis. Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe there's another reason so many people were worried about mental health while filling out the census. 
Here's demographer Mark McCrindle. Well, probably just that this is a snapshot of what was happening last August in lockdown when we mm. all filled it in. 96% of us were at home on that night, so we were not <laughs> getting out much. That's 2 million more than we had at home in the prior census. And we only had 60,000 overseas visitors in Australia on census night, which is sort of phenomenal for a country that you know, throws out the welcome mat. The prior census, we had more than 300,000 overseas visitors. So we really were in lockdown, closed borders, bunkering down. And that's why we had such a high completion rate on the census. So not identity politics, lockdown, which Ron Dean probably thinks is also identity politics somehow. It wasn't just Dean who found cause for alarm in the census. Peter Credlin also sees the end times in the numbers. Then there's something that most of us will merely note, which I think's got wide ramifications for so much else that we value or take for granted, namely the decline in religious belief, even over just the past five years. Now, 50 years back in 1971, which was when I was born, 87% of us identified as religious. Now it's just 54% of us who say we're religious. And here's the really striking feature. Just five years back, out of those who said they were religious, 52% of us said we were Christian. Now, that number in today's data is 44%. Basically, almost 40% of the population now sees itself as atheistic or agnostic, which, as an atheist, fuck yeah! Here's Peter Credlin, however, explaining why kids will be ruined without Christ. What these results also show is that as parents get more and more busy outside the home and schools fill the void, without as many volunteer community organisations and without church on the weekend, it's our education system that's raising our children. And even a cursory look at the curriculum will say to you, that's a worry. Where's the Sunday schools and the scouts and a bit of volunteering for our younger generations? Sadly, it's a life lived behind a device or a screen if it's outside school hours and a fair amount of indoctrination in the schoolroom. Not a good omen for the future, is it? Also, having religion in the classroom is indoctrination. Kids can and do volunteer and do scouts and all kinds of things without needing to be taught some bullshit about an imaginary man in the sky telling them not to be gay. Peter Credlin then invites John Anderson, Deputy Prime Minister under John Howard, who also, by the way, voted against the same-sex marriage. But the big question that arises is, what are the linkages then between the other things the census tells us about? Uh, we know that mental health is now the number one health concern. We have unparalleled levels of anxiety, depression and self-harm amongst our young people. We have a million uh, single-parent homes. We know that's suboptimal. The research is very clear, and I don't mean to pass judgment on people in unfortunate circumstances, but it's, it can't be painted as, as, as a tremendous thing. Increasingly, our society looks, frankly, more fractured, less trustworthy, more broken up, more divided along identity politics lines, less coherent than ever. So my question to those who are dancing on the grave, as they think they are, of... Christianity, uh, what's the alternative? Where is your better way? I don't know, John. Maybe the better way is not to put your faith in a religion where there have been multiple child sex abuse scandals, repeated attempts at blocking same-sex marriage, and the continued presence of people like, well, you. 
Perhaps, and hear me out here, it isn't a lack of religion that makes people feel mentally unwell and disparate. Rather, it's all the damage religions have done to society over the years that cause us to feel that way. And now that we're finally getting rid of religion, we can start healing. An Australia full of atheist millennials who finally fight for climate change, better rental protection and mental health considerations while eating butter chicken and garlic naans? That sounds pretty fucking cool to me. Death by four cuts news now. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has been busy since taking office a little over a month ago, from backing and increase the minimum wage to announcing the most diverse front bench in Australian history, and now heading off to a NATO summit in Spain. So it was about time that he did something controversial. And finally, here it is. But on Friday, the PM put some of the new politicians into a spin, proposing reducing their support staff from eight to five. Backbenchers who are members of the major parties get four staff in their electorate office as standard. The PM is proposing to give the independents one extra well-paid senior advisor. In the last term of the Morrison government, crossbenchers were allocated four additional advisors, more than some shadow ministers. So basically, during the Morrison government, crossbenchers and independents were treated well because the government relied on them to push through legislation. Albanese promised to do the same in the early post-election days when first confronted with news of independence winning many seats across the country. We need to change the way that politics operates in this country. We need to be more inclusive. We can do that. That all changed, however, when the election commission was done counting all the votes and Labour discovered it had a majority in Parliament and didn't need the independence as much as it thought it would. Now, instead of seeing them as allies to be wooed, they're being treated as hurdles to be flattened. Decreasing the senior advisors from four to one doesn't sound like a major issue, I know. After all, if the Labour and National Coalition government of the last nine years are anything to go by, one doesn't need four senior advisors to give high-paying contracts to close friends and family while sexually harassing every woman who enters the borders of Canberra. But, and this comes to a surprise to us all, politics can actually require one to do more than that. Here's outgoing independent senator Rex Patrick. This is an attempt by Anthony Albanese to nobble the crossbench. MPs and senators will be under so much time pressure, they simply won't be able to do the very effective job that other independent members and senators have done in the past. The challenge for independents will now be to be as across every bill they have to vote on as members of the major parties who have collective resources, which means those independents will be dependent on the Labour Party to direct their votes. It's like going on a first date, then slapping the menu out of your date's hands, claiming this is to help the economy while ordering water and bread but no butter as the main course and expecting there to be a second date later. Let's be honest, Trump's probably going to be fine news now. The January 6th hearings are continuing, as half of America continues to delude itself into thinking people in power will ever face consequences for their actions. The latest attempt to prevent Donald Trump running again in the next election has seen a surprise testimony from a former White House aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, describing a story she heard from a White House security official about Trump attacking a Secret Service agent on January 6th. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm 
said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Okay, so a few things here. Firstly, it's always scary when someone starts a story describing something Trump did with this sentence. The president reached up. That he reached up and grabbed a steering wheel, as opposed to a woman's genitalia, shows at least some growth in his character. And secondly, while that testimony is shocking, it hasn't yet been corroborated by the Secret Service, which has in fact denied it. A source close to the Secret Service tells me that President Trump was apparently not happy with that answer, but the agents in the car would push back against any allegation of an assault by President Trump and the allegation that he reached for the steering wheel. So maybe it didn't happen. She is relating a story that she heard from someone else, so its veracity is questionable. But those weren't the only stories about Donald Trump that Cassidy Hutchinson related from her time working for the chief of staff at the White House. I noticed that the door was propped open and the valet was inside the dining room changing the tablecloth off of the dining room table. He motioned for me to come in and then pointed towards the front of the room near the fireplace mantle and the TV where I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the Attorney General's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall. There were several times throughout my tenure with the Chief of Staff that I was aware of him either throwing dishes or flipping the tablecloth um, to let all the contents of the table go onto the floor and likely break or go everywhere. Maybe all the stories about Trump eating McDonald's all the time aren't because he loved a Big Mac, but because his staff realized it was cheaper and less destructive to let him toss a small styrofoam box with a half-eaten burger. Or maybe he was trying to do that magic trick where you pull the tablecloth out without shaking the plates. I mean, you tell me that wouldn't win some votes in the next election. Trump the magician? I'd vote for that guy. Look, in Trump's defense, throwing food at the walls is quite athletic, even for him. And I'm quite sure Biden would die if he even attempted at tossing a French fry with any effort at all. Donald Trump has attempted to dismiss these allegations of him having a bad temper by posting his response on social media. First attacking Cassidy Hutchinson's handwriting, quote, bad handwriting, that of a wacko, question mark. Then her body language. Quote, her body language is that of a total bull, dot, 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 artist. Fantasy land, exclamation mark. Luckily, the Democrats have a plan for 2024, and it might not involve the oldest man in the world, Joe Biden, nor Vice President Kamala Harris, as explained in this CNN video, which, for some unknown reason, has 80s porn music in the background. That's according to a new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by pollster Doug Schoen and former New York City Council President Andrew Stein. Quote, Several circumstances, President Biden's low approval rating, doubts over his capacity to run for re-election at 82, Vice President Kamala Harris's unpopularity, and the absence of another strong Democrat to lead the ticket in 2024 have created a leadership vacuum in the party, which Mrs. Clinton viably could fill the two, right? Adding, she's already in an advantageous position to become the 2024 Democratic nominee. Hillary Clinton. Maybe the Democratic Party is just addicted to losing. Like, even when they win, they do find a way to make it a loss. And finally, here, without any comment, 
or context is a quote from British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. If Putin was a woman, which I, he obviously isn't, but uh, if he were, I really don't think he would have embarked on a crazy macho war of, of invasion uh, and violence in the way that he has. If you want a perfect example of toxic masculinity, it's, it would, it's what he's doing in, in Ukraine. I've got nothing to add to that. That's it for this week's edition of News Weekly. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. Give it a five-star rating. That stuff really helps a lot. It makes a huge difference in the algorithms. And if the algorithms push the podcast up into people's feeds, more people will subscribe. If more people subscribe, then maybe more people will hear my pleas for money on my Patreon. That's patreon.com slash samishah. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H. If you send a few dollars my way, I'm going to send all kinds of cool content your way. And it'll help me become independently wealthy enough to finally buy my own private jet or pay my rent whichever comes first that's it from this week's edition of news weekly i'm going to see you right back here next week on news weekly where we punch the news in the headlines weekly